Alright, Judges chapter 3 tonight. We will continue going through the book of Judges. And something I want to kind of challenge everybody with tonight. Uh, a few of you may remember this, but years ago on Wednesdays, um, I preached, I did one sermon on each of the kings of the southern kingdom. Um, and, are we, and we started with the kings of Israel with Saul, David, Solomon. And then I was trying to get everybody to memorize the names. And so like every night we would like all together say the names. And so like the first night we all together said Saul. Anybody remember that? And then the next week, Saul, David, Saul, David, Solomon. And by the end, a few of us had them memorized. Now I have since forgotten um, how to do that. I, I, I do pretty good until you start getting around, you know, Ahaziah, Jotham, somewhere in there. It's just like, uh, I, I, I would probably flunk that test right now if I tried it, but I was able to do it for a while. Well, I want to try to do the same thing with the judges. All right? I want us to see if we can memorize all of the judges. And so we're going to look at the first three of them tonight. Uh, and, as, and as we go through this story too, uh, we're going to go through this book, but also I do want to just kind of preach and I want to uh, just kind of compare some things. And I want that uh, with our world we are in today. These things are written for our admonition and we're supposed to learn from them as a church, uh, as Christians, as independent fundamental Baptists. I think there's some great principles that we can learn from this. But we're going to learn three names tonight. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Y'all want to say those names with me? Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar. Okay, Memorize those. Get that in your head. And we're going to add names to that. Okay, And we're going to see... And uh, maybe we'll, uh, you know, reward everybody with a lollipop or something. I don't know if you can, like, say all the judges in order by the time we're all done. And I don't know how far we'll go because technically Samuel was a judge. He's not mentioned. And then technically, too, his two sons uh, were also judges. They weren't very good ones. Uh, they were so bad that it brought in the era of the kings. But I don't know. We might. Uh, we'll see what happens. We've got a long way before we get there. But let's go ahead and start going through uh, chapter 3. And just a reminder, chapter 2, that was a summary of the entire age of the judges. It basically gave us an overview, talking about all the really bad things that they did, that it resulted in a people who just, everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. That is not good. I would be terrified to live in a nation where everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. I, boy, that would be bad. And especially in our country right now, because we're just so stinking wicked. Now, a lot of people in our country, we like the sound of that. Hey, you all just, whatever you think is right, that's what you can do. You know, and that, everybody's going to like that real well until somebody feels like it's okay to rob people, murder people, and all that kind of stuff. But you can't have that. You can't have this atheist type mentality that there is no God, there is no law. It all comes from somewhere. And that's another subject for another day. But now in chapter 3, we're going to go back and we're going to kind of start seeing some of the details. And we're going to see how Israel got to this point. Because in chapter 1, it was just a little bit of backsliding. All they did is they just didn't utterly destroy these people. I mean, they mostly did. They subdued these people. They put them to tribute. That's not that bad. Well, the truth is, going against God at all is bad. And there's, there's always going to be consequences. And so we're going to start seeing that here. In this chapter, and it says in verse 1, Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them. 
even as many of Israel had not known all the wars of Canaan. So we've got a generation now that doesn't really know war. I mean, think about that. Things were so good during the time of Joshua, after they fought those battles and after the death of Joshua and all the elders that outlived Joshua, they have this time of peace and prosperity. Why? Because they obeyed the Lord. Because they did what God said. They got to see miracles. I mean, just wonderful things happened as a result of them being obedient to God. But unfortunately, this new generation, I don't remember that. I didn't see that stuff. So these, they don't know war, which, so on one hand, it's kind of a good thing, you know, that you don't need that stuff. But at the same time, too, they're not obeying God. So it's pretty important that you know war because enemies are going to come. And it says only that generation of the children of Israel might know to teach them war at the least such as before knew nothing thereof, namely five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwelt on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon <clears throat> under the entering of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And so we already know from chapter two what the result is. God's going to test Israel <clears throat> with these nations that he's left. And spoiler alert, they're not going to pass the test. Chapter two already told us. And so again, chapter three, we're backing up. And we're getting the details. So we're about to start hearing the stories about how all these things went down. And it says, And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to be their sons and served their gods. And this right here is exactly why God told them not to make leagues with them and to drive them out completely. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, God's telling them, He's like, y'all better watch out. He said, I'm going to bring you into this land. I'm going to give you a bunch of good things. I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. And He said, you're going to be blessed. You're going to eat. You're going to be full. But then He said in verse 11, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping His commandments and His judgments and His statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up because thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Uh, And so right there, God told them, beware. He's like, I'm going to do all these good things. And he said, you've got to beware. Otherwise, you are going to forget. And that's what happened. And understand, forgetting It's not something that he's talking about so much as an individual, but he's talking about forgetting it as a nation, as a people. And I'm going to make some comparisons tonight because, and I I believe it is biblical to do this. Uh, These things we're supposed to learn from them, but I'm going to compare a lot of things that we're seeing in the judges with what we've seen in the IFB over the last years. And so in the IF, in the IFB world, in the independent fundamental Baptist world, sadly, I do believe there's a lot of things that we have forgotten as a people, there's a lot of things that, um, you know, the previous generation, the individuals, they didn't so much forget these things. I mean, guys like John R. Rice, he was probably one of the biggest promoters of soul winning. You know, guys like him and Jack Hiles and Curtis Hudson. I mean, those guys, to the time they died, I mean, they were just, it was soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, soul winning. And they, they, those guys never forgot that. But, the movement that those guys built and got going, they have 
forgotten for the most part. They still kind of do it to a certain extent. It's on the program. I mean, if you go to any kind of church that considers themselves independent, fundamental, King James only Baptist, ask them, y'all have a soul-winning program. Well, yeah, y'all believe in soul-winning. Of course we believe in soul-winning. They preach about soul-winning. They talk about it in all their conferences. But then you actually go, and is anybody actually doing anything with it? Not really. Not really. You know why? We've just kind of forgotten about it. And you know, some, some have gone as far as to just completely eliminate it. And you know what? We're seeing what's happening as a result. Again, I said this the other day. We could quit our soul winning program and our church might even grow. Our church might do better financially. Our church might see some immediate you know, benefits in some area if we do that. But long term, it's going to nail us big time. The doctrine will change. We will have to change the preaching to justify our lack of soul winning. And also, it's going to make it more comfortable to bring in a type of people into the church that shouldn't be comfortable in church. And it's going to cause us eventually to go liberal. And before we know it, we're one of these fun center churches where we're not getting anybody saved. That, that's what happens as a result of these things. And so we've seen how generations, they can't, they can forget. And God warned Israel about this. It was just a little thing. And when they did, when they made leagues with these people, you know what it probably resulted in? It probably resulted, it, 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 did, it would have resulted in immediate peace. All of a sudden now, we're getting along with these people. They're marrying our daughters. We're giving our daughters to them. I mean, we're getting along. We're not in danger anymore. You know what? Now that we're, these, we, these people are under tribute to us, we're benefiting financially from this. But fast forward a generation and now, We've got Israel serving their gods. And now we've got God mad at Israel. And then those people that they made these leagues with, guess what they did? They end up taking over. That's what happens. And folks, that happens in religion. Sadly, a lot of Baptists have decided to make leagues with groups they never should have made any leagues with. Groups that they used to preach against. Now you see them linking arms with each other. Listen, last thing we need to be doing is going... And joining up with the trendies, joining up with the Calvinists, joining up with the you know the compromisers, joining up with the NIV crowd and all that kind of stuff. If, uh, it'll, it'll result in it'll result in peace. It'll result in our church becoming more popular. It'll result in you know us being able to have conferences and more people will come to these things and our meetings will be more successful. But again, what it's going to turn us into right now? We don't want that. And you know when Israel made that league those leagues with the people of that land, if you'd have said, hey, you all in Israel, do you all want to serve other gods? They'd have been like, absolutely not. You know, what, what would you all think if you all were serving other gods? We would never do that. That's what they would have said then on that day. These things never happen overnight, ladies and gentlemen. It happens over years. It happens over a generation. That's how these things always go down. And that's how it was then. We read these stories. It's one chapter. It's a few verses. But it'll cover a generation. But we've got to understand we're supposed to learn from this. And these, and we need to think about the fact these things took years. Because too many times, people are. They're compromising. They're backsliding. They're not getting hit with lightning bolts. God's not immediately bringing the hammer down on them. Because many times God's giving you a chance to repent. And I'm telling you, you know, we, we need to understand that... You know, no, we're not getting away with anything. We will pay. Folks, folks, just, just get a hold of that. We will pay. Let's compromise in the Bible version. 
We will pay eventually. Our kids will pay. We cannot do that kind of thing. And so, Exodus 23, 31 says, And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea unto the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert unto the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in the land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. And uh, folks, understand, this was a different generation that God gave that to. But did you know that God expected it from the next generation? God expected it from all the generations after that. Those next generations who were a part of Israel, they were accountable for those things. And they weren't able to just go and say, well, we never promised to do any of those things. Listen, if, you know, if, what, if they wanted to get rid of those things, what they should have just done is they should have just got up and said, we renounce God, we renounce the name of Israel, we renounce our claim to the land, and you know what? Let God see what He wants to do about it. And God would have definitely brought the hammer down on them. But you know what they always did? They always tried to continue to pretend to be Israel, kind of like they're doing today. Even though they renounced the Son of God, even though they you know, killed Jesus Christ, even though they killed the prophets, what are they still trying to do today? No, the land's still ours. We're still the people of God. That's not, that's not right. That's an absolute lie. And let me tell you something. I get it. We're an independent church. But, you know, if we're going to claim to be a part of the independent fundamental Baptist movement, then, you know, shouldn't we, you know, have some things that resemble the independent fundamental Baptist movement of old, the things that they pushed, the things that they promoted, you know, shouldn't we, you know, be loyal to these things? And if it is, if soul winning is bad, if, you know, easy salvation is, is bad, if a King James Bible is bad, then you know what we need to do? We just need to be honest and we need to get up and say, you know what? We are no longer an independent fundamental Baptist church. We are an independent, or we are just an independent, non-denom, skinny jean, wine sipping church. You know, let's just be honest about it. But if we're gonna if we're gonna claim these things, then we need to actually put it into practice. And let me tell you, there's a lot of churches in the IFB that they're still claiming a name for something that doesn't even resemble what that name used to be. And that's not right. That's not good. And so we often so we often take these things like, like this for granted because you know we know something that the next you know we all, we often think the next generation understands the things that we know. And I think that's one of the areas too where and I don't you know when it when it comes to who's at fault for things in the IFB, the state of it right now. I talked to somebody the other day, somebody who is not IFB, used to be kind of anti-IFB, and I just had to admit to him, I think the independent fundamental Baptist movement is in a lot of trouble. I really do. I I I told him I I said I I don't know that it can exist much longer in the path that it is on. And it's in, you know, I think the only options are either a major revival amongst independent fundamental Baptists or God might just, you know, bring a revival and a, a, a reformation to some other group somewhere where they're going to start getting things right that we weren't getting right. And we're just going to be this dead, worthless you know, group out there like some of these non-denom churches are, you know, like the Methodists or something like that. You know, I, I hope that never happens to Baptist churches, but you know what it could, and it's happened in a lot of Baptist churches, without a doubt. And so, 
you know, is it is very important that those of us make sure that not only do we tell the next generation what they're supposed to do, but we also make sure it's in their hearts. And I don't have time to go into the scriptures on this, but that's why God told them when he gave them the law, these things shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt talk about them with thy children. Talk when you're walking by the way, when you lay down, when you rise up. He was always saying, talk about them. You know why? So they need to be in your heart. And somewhere along the line, somewhere along the way, the things that the independent fundamental Baptist movement has taught are, were just not in the hearts of the people who graduated from independent fundamental Baptist colleges, guys that were sent out of independent fundamental Baptist churches. These things were not in their heart because as soon as they go and they get their own church, as soon as they go and they get on the mission field, what do they do? They dump everything. Why? Why is it? It, wasn't in, it was never in their heart. And let me tell you, you can take this however you want it. You can take this good, positive, whatever. But, you know, when it comes to all things independent fundamental Baptist, I mean, it is. It, it's in my heart. And as goofed up as some of these groups are out there, I still love the independent fundamental Baptist. I still uh, love the fellowship of these people. I want the best for them. There's a lot of people trying to throw them all in hell. I refuse to let them go to hell. I, re- I refuse to admit that they're on their way to hell. But that, that's, just, that's just how I am. I'm kind of like the Apostle Paul, I think, sometimes how he was with Israel. He just couldn't let go of Israel, no matter how bad they were, how, how bad they were getting. But, but again, while Paul couldn't let go of Israel, while he couldn't let go of his brethren, in reality, who was it that abandoned the things of God? Was it Paul or was it Israel? It was Israel that did. And you know what? I'm going to keep on loving the IFB, you know, as long as they exist. Because that's just who I am. It's where I came from. And as long as I'm staying loyal to the Word of God, I think I'm okay. So, well, they're going to keep on beating you up. That's how I, I can take it. You know, it's like, it, it's okay. It's, it's okay. I love them enough. I'll, I'll take the beatings. Uh, I'll, I'll take some of that stuff. But verse 7 says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Chushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Chushan Rishathaim eight years. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Chushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Chushan Rishathaim. I can't believe how many times that word's in there, and I, I hope I'm saying it right, but it's a mouthful. But then watch this, and the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And you say, I don't, I don't believe that there's going to be another revival in the IFB. A lot of people have written it off. There's not going to be another revival. There was an awful lot of revivals in Israel when they certainly didn't deserve it. There was a lot of revivals in there. You know why? Because they were God's people and God loved them. And you know what? And God often would raise up men. And we're going to see this too. This is a theme throughout the book of Judges and we're going to talk about this. God would often raise up men to deliver Israel, to get them back on track. And let me tell you about most of these men we're going to look at. They all had some issues. They all had some, some of them had some pretty big issues. Some of them were kind of embarrassing. But you know what? God used them in a great way. God raised up men. God raised up judges who got them back on track 
But it was when the people would call on the Lord. And, and I mean, I'm telling you, the book of Judges is such a testament to the mercy of God. Here Israel, after all these wonderful things God's done, they deliberately go against what he told them to do. Even after they had their camp meeting where the angel came and told them, you all sinned against the Lord. They all, they all had a good cry spell, didn't they? But again, they forgot about it and they kept doing the things that they were doing. And so then they did after it got so bad because they're, you know, they're in captivity by this enemy. They cry unto the Lord and God hears their cry and God sends them a deliverer that gives them peace for 40 years. 40 years of peace. What a blessing that was. And Othniel, the brother of, younger brother of Caleb, it was that man that God used and then he died. And God often raises up men to help get people back on track. Because you know what? Israel was always veering off. And again, as much as I love the IFB, I do believe over the years the Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement has veered off in some areas. And I believe God has raised up men to straighten them out on things. I believe, you know, God raised up, you know, men that kind of straighten them out when it comes to the King James Bible. And, you know, uh, you know uh, that have motivated the soul winning. And again, all these guys had flaws. John R. Rice wasn't a King James only guy, but I think he probably did more to just promote soul winning than just about anybody that has ever existed in that world. You know, people like to talk about Jack Hiles all the time and they're always like trying to find the skeletons in his closet and all that kind of stuff. And you know what? People are always, you know, what do you think about Jack Hiles? Because everybody has this mentality. They were either all good or they were all bad. And you know what? When people don't like guys like Jack Hiles, John Rice, my first question is, why don't you like him? And typically, you know, if, if you didn't, if you just didn't like how he preached, then, you know, you got a problem. If you didn't like, you know, a lot of people, they don't like what he said about soloing. They don't like what he said about the King James Bible. They don't like what he said about dress standards. They don't, they don't like what he said about that. But you know what? Listen, I don't really care because at the end of the day, I don't worship any man. I don't blindly follow any man. But I will say this. When I was, I was talking about this the other day. When I was ordained, there were seven pastors that were all a part of that ordination. And six, I, I believe six out of those seven were all former Southern Baptists that were led out of the Southern Baptist movement and they credited Jack Hiles for that. So it's just like, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, everything that went on there, I, I don't know. I really don't care. I do know in my personal experience with people that were in my life, there was a very positive influence that helped them in a very great way. And so, yeah, but he had flaws. You know what? <laughs> then let's look at him like one of the judges in the Old Testament. And he was a guy that was used in a great way to help get the IFB on track in many areas. And you know what? People get mad too. They do. They get mad when you bring up certain names. You know? And, and I'm telling you, with any, you, you name anybody, any big name in the IFB that's been revolutionary at all, and there's all kinds of bad stuff you can say about them. A lot of, them's, a lot of it's probably not true. Some of it's probably true. But, you know, even guys like Stephen Anderson, I think, God, I think God used him to kind of wake people up on eschatology stuff. You know why? Because the IFB got off. They went and they got caught up in all this Hal Lindsey foolishness, this John Hagee foolishness. They let the leaven of people like that get into their churches. And you know what? Yeah, I mean, may, you know, maybe it has some issues. Maybe there's some little crazy there or whatever. But you know what? I believe God used that. He's used him in a great way. 
to help wake people up on that, pull people away from dispensationalism. They let the leaven of dispensationalism into their churches, and God's, you know, God's used, you know, people within that and say, but you know, everybody's got to. It's like no, they're either 100% bad or they're 100% good. It's like no, it's not like that with anybody. And when we're going to look at these judges, man, they did add some real problems. But you know what? Let's, you know, the Bible focuses on what they did good. And it's okay. You know, so the thing is, if you don't like Jack Hiles, fine. My question is just why? I hope it's for, not for the wrong reasons. You don't like guys like Anderson, my question is why? You know? And if, you know, hopefully, uh, if it's, or if it's for, you know, the bad reasons, well, then, you know, you've got a problem. But sadly, uh, Everybody just has this mentality, either all good or all bad. That is not what we see with God's men in the Bible. Now, we're going to see, too, that even some of these men that were flawed, if people went along with those flaws, it ended up getting them in trouble. Okay? I mean, again, you know, in the Hiles movement, were there some crazies and some weirdos that came out of that college? Well, of course there were. There's also a zillion people that came out of that. Okay? You know, in, in the new IFB world, are there some crazy loony jobs in there? Well, of course there are. I mean, we've seen some of them. Uh, you know, some of you might be. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, it, you know at, at the end of the day, you know, I, it doesn't mean we have to just act like nobody ever got saved from that. That's just dumb. And that's dumb, and that's what everybody always tries to do, and uh, we don't need to be that way. Maybe, maybe... God raised somebody up like that to just slap the IFB, you know, silly. Just kind of straighten them out. Because guess what? This is going to drive you all crazy in the next couple of weeks. But you know who else God used? Deborah. Okay? Now, I, you know, Deborah messes up, messes with a lot of your theology and stuff like that. But let me tell you, I think there's some very, you know, I'm just going to say, I think Deborah was a good woman. I do. I believe she was a good woman. Okay. Now, now I, I don't want to get. I don't want to get. I don't want to get into next week's message. All right. But now, if we got any women in here, like, all right, you know, what? I'm going to be like Deborah. I'm going to rise to leadership in this church. Well, just understand, the reason there was a Deborah is because the men were lame, weak, and pathetic. And so, I don't think she was the bad guy. I think the guys were the bad guys. And so unless we are lame, weak, and pathetic in this church, um, you're not going to come into leadership, okay? And, and if you do, uh, you're probably not the one with the issues. We are. And let me tell you, any church with men in it who let women take over the church, it's just like every church I see with a woman pastor, I just think, what's wrong with the men in that church? And a lot of times we like to talk about what's wrong with the woman. But my question is, what's wrong with the men? And that's next week's message. We'll, we'll talk about that more. But just understand, God, God works in mysterious ways. You know, Peter Ruckman, was he used of God on, for the King James issue? I, I don't know. I don't know. You know. Or was he there to make it look bad? I don't really know. All I know is my King James onlyism has nothing to do with him. It has absolutely nothing to do with him. You know, did he help some people in that area? I don't know. If he did, he messed it all up with the dispensationalism stuff. But, you know, most of it is either all bad or all good. You know, I can't figure out why God used Samson. I can't figure out why God would use a guy like that with all the problems he had. And 
And so let's just, we, we've got to just get over this mentality that they're 100% good or they're 100% bad. Let's never blindly follow any man. But you know what? If God raises up a man that wakes up the IFB in some areas where it needs to be awakened, let's be thankful for that. Let's thank God. Let's praise God. And let me tell you, when I look at these judges and who God used, you know who I think deserves glory is God. I look at what Samson did. I think God deserves the glory for what happened. So, um, you know, if, if the world, uh, if the IFB world all turns to the post-trib, pre-wrath, anti-Zionist, we're not going to praise a man. You know, we're going we're to praise God. And we're going to praise God that He used men to give people a good kick in the pants where they needed it. And I hope that's what happens. You know, and God might use someone we don't like. He said, if the IFB does have its revival, it'll probably come where we least expect it. That's what I think. It'll probably come where we least expect it. But either way, I hope he does it. I hope, I hope God gets it done. It'll be God that gets it done, not a man. And so, uh, it was always flawed men. And so, and it's always too, again, 40 years. It's hard for us to think in time periods of that long. But what we need to understand is that backsliding or apostasy in churches, it doesn't happen in months or years. It usually happens in decades. And again, go back 40 years. I've got some sword of the Lord, old issues of the sword of the Lord in my office, like from like the 60s and 70s. Now, maybe some even older than that that Brother Steve gave me. And you know what? When you look in a lot of those issues, first off, you see names like Jerry Falwell in there preaching at these meetings, you know, Jack Van Impey. There's all kinds of heretics uh, that we that you see in there, or people that uh, were at one time good but compromised, backslid, or whatever. But you know what else too that I remember seeing in, in one of those issues too. One of their big conferences they had. You know what they had on the program scheduled soul winning. They used to do that. Did you know John R. Rice at his meetings? He would have hundreds of pastors soul winning during their conferences. Pastors doing that. Listen, you go to most churches today, you go to most conferences today, they talk about soul winning, and if anybody goes soul winning, the last people they're going to be doing are the preachers. And, and we've experienced that. Anytime we do stuff with other churches trying to help with the soul winning, guess who's always got to stay back at headquarters and you know make sure everything's okay in the kitchen or whatever? It's the pastor. They're like the last one to go out. You know, we, We've seen that multiple times. It's like, dude... We're trying to help you people, but if you're not even going to help yourself, you know, I give up. <laughs> but folks, it didn't used to be that way. Okay, you think some of you think the new IFB made up soul winning? Some of you think that they made up having soul winning in conferences? No, they used to do that a long time ago. All right, before any of these guys were ever even born, they used to do that kind of stuff. But what happened? Forty years later. A generation later, they've forgotten about it. They've forgotten about it. Why? Those judges have died off. Those judges have died off. And what we need are some new judges rising up and saying, hey, you lazy preachers. You know what? Instead of sitting around all afternoon, drinking coffee, eating biscuits and gravy, talking about the glory days, why don't you get out there and work off a few pounds, go walk the streets, go knock some doors, why don't you go set an example for your people and get out there and actually go give somebody the gospel? No, they're just gonna keep they're just gonna keep talking about it. But you know what, in the meantime, you know, we're just gonna keep doing it. We're gonna keep on getting it done. So we're gonna have our conference in, in September. And you know, and we are we're gonna we're gonna have so many, and you know what? 
We're not inviting we're not inviting the lame crowd in. I'm tired of these people just throwing a damper on everything and not doing nothing. We can invite them, but are are they going to want to get involved in the souling? Are they going to want to participate in that? No. You know why? Because they've forgotten it. But you know we're trying to we're trying to wake people up in this area. I I, I need I need to keep going. I'm just kind of ranting tonight. But it says in the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Amnon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised him up and deliver Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, king of Moab. Now, there's many things in this, in this passage about Ehud and Eglon that might be a little confusing, but I think a lot of it, too, is because we might not fully understand the cultural significance of these things, you know, or we might be going off bad information, too, you know, but, you know, why does it even bring up that he's left-handed, you know, and it talks about him drawing the dagger from his right thigh, you know, some people say, what he, so what they'll say he was doing, what I've always heard, the Bible doesn't specifically say this, is he was able to just kind of go up, like shake hands or something, which I don't even know if that's how they greeted back then, but it made it easy for him to just kind of, you know, grab his dagger and, you know, stab him. Kind of sneaky. Got the job done. Uh, either way. But, you know, it's fine for us to, people to look into these things, speculate, but we don't want to build doctrine around passages like that. And as long as nobody's doing that, that's fine. A lot of times this is an example of the Scripture just telling us what happened. And, not, and a lot of times, too, it's not necessarily an endorsement of everything they did. It's, you know, if, you know, was Ehud fighting dirty right here and was that okay? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it's how he did it. And he got the job done. It says, but Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length and he did gird it under his raiment and upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him and was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat and he had put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors and the parlor upon him and locked them. And when he was gone out, his servant came. And when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely he covereth his feet in his summer, summer chamber. Now, this is a pretty gross story right here, but uh, imagine stabbing a guy... So hard, a cubit length knife that even the handle goes into the fat. And it it's kind of gross to think about. Either way, kind of cool too. But he's, so he's in this summer parlor, and, um, and the Bible says too that they thought, you know, it says, Behold, he covereth his feet. Okay? Now, if, if you read commentaries, pretty much all the commentaries agree that what that is is a euphemism for going to the bathroom basically. And, um, you know, I think that's probably the case. There's another place in the Bible where we talk about Saul going into a cave to cover his feet. You know, I think it's a euphemism. Now, you say, what's the significance of that? It is a reminder 
that there are some things that are just not appropriate to say. There are some things that it's not polite to speak about in public. Okay? And even if it's not a sin, right? is it a sin to go to the bathroom? No, but go to the bathroom? I mean, what, is the, you know, what does that mean? Obviously, I mean, if I went into the, if I go to the bathroom, wash my hands. You know, do I have to get specific? No, there's some things we just don't need to talk about. But in our culture today, too, we even have very crude ways people talk about going to the bathroom sometimes, too. You know, and I'm not going to repeat any of those things. All right? I don't think you all are so ignorant here. I have to explain any crude things to you. All right? But you know what? We should censor our speech sometimes because there are things that are just inappropriate to talk about. When the Bible talks about a man knowing his wife, what guy doesn't know his wife? You know, we understand it's talking about something else. But we don't need to get specific. We don't need to just say whatever. It's, it's just about being polite. There are some things that are inappropriate. And, if, and I am not impressing anybody if I get up here and I just boldly, defiantly, just in the crudest possible terms, get up here and say what all these things mean in the Bible because you all are too ignorant to figure that out. But it's okay because I'm just explaining what these things mean. Y'all know what it means. Okay? So, again, if even the Bible uses a euphemism, if even the Bible doesn't go into the gory details on these things, I think that's a good sign. You know what? Let's be careful about how we talk about some of these things. And we do. In our society today, people aren't real careful about that stuff. And that's why we hear just constant vulgar talk all the time. And... That, that's not a good thing. That's not okay. And so I believe that's an example of what we're seeing right here. But it says, so they're thinking he's in there covering his feet. They're thinking he's in there and, you know, sometimes things don't go like you want them to go. That probably wasn't a good way to put it either. I mean, think, anyway, I'm trying to be careful, you know. I don't think I need, again, I don't think I need to explain anything to you. But it says, and they tarried till they were ashamed. And we've been there before where you wanted to get in the bathroom and it was like, man, they've been there for a long time. And, you know, and you want to kind of beat on the door and tell them to hurry up. But, you know, you want to be polite, too. But it's like at some point you have to start making a decision where it's like, okay, either something's wrong and something happened to them or this is a really bad experience they're having in there. And so, you don't, you, you don't really know what to do. And so that's kind of where these people are at. They, they're tearing till they're ashamed. It's like we've left him alone for a long time. Maybe he's having problems, you know, uh, you know, and it, so, but finally, they open the doors of the parlor because when somebody's covering their feet, you don't want to open the door, typically. And it says, and therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried, and passed beyond the quarries and escaped unto Sirath. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he before them. And he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies unto the Moabites into your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of uh, Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years. And when it talks about it being all lusty too, that's not a term that we normally used, but some of the things I've read on that, the definitions, it's like they were all just like large men. 
A big man is another way um, possibly to put it. Uh, there's different opinions on that. But either way, these guys that they defeated were people that they probably shouldn't have been able to defeat. And But again, God is delivering them. God is using Ehud to deliver them, just like he did with Othniel, but we're in a new generation. And so it says, And Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest four score years. Eighty years this time, God blesses them with peace. They had rest for 80 years. Imagine that. Can you imagine? Eight, I mean, 80 years, even in any nation with no wars. We, we've, not even, we've never experienced anything like that. Even in our country, we haven't gone 80 years without wars. This is, this, I don't know. I have not fact-checked this or looked it up. But, I mean, this, this very well could be the, probably the longest period of rest Israel ever had. 80 years. And so, this brings us to the third judge, Shamgar. The Bible says very little about him, but it says, And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Now, I kind of like to hear more about that guy. He killed 600 men with an ox goad? What in the world? That sounds like Samson with the jawbone of a donkey. Samson outdid him a little bit. I think it was 800 that he killed. With the jawbone of a donkey, which is an even less impressive thing to kill people with. So, so I mean, uh, or a less uh, likely weapon for killing people. But uh, this guy here, he's pretty good. Now, what's interesting, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly when this timeline was, but this was probably somewhere during this time of 80 years where something started stirring up with the Philistines. But this guy took care of business and didn't mess up peace. Didn't mess up uh, the rest that they were having during that time. And, it just, and I believe God did it this way too because Israel was following the Lord during this time. So whenever the enemy starts rising up and doing something they shouldn't do, God's like, well, you know what? I'll take care of you. I'll have Shamgar go. And maybe the power of God came on him like he would with Samson. Maybe Shamgar was just that good of a fighter. I don't know. But either way, one guy taking out 600, you know what? I wouldn't want to mess with that guy. Yeah, that, that's pretty impressive. But I, so, um, you know, so chapter four, it's going to start out with Israel doing evil again after the death of Ehud. Okay. And now, uh, again, you know, why is so little said about this event too? Because this is something too, I, I want to touch on this because I made the claim last week that it does, it appears to me when I'm reading my Bible and I'm zooming out and looking at it as a whole, that when I see the books of Judges, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, that these things are basically laying out the transgressions of Israel, showing why they went into captivity. And one of the things that's interesting about that is anytime you see a king, for example, back when we were going through the kings, I said my favorite king was Jotham, because the Bible said very, very little about him. You know why? Because nothing bad happened during his reign. He did right in the sight of the Lord. And God just blessed. Did you know when you read most of the stories of the kings, it's telling about bad things that they did and the consequences that came from it. Do you realize most of the stories of David, we all know the story of David and Goliath, but most of the stories about him, from especially while he was king, it's stories about how he did wrong and then the consequences of the wrong he did. So that's why it's like the books of Judges, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, they seem very focused on the negative. 
It's like we have these kings where all these good things happen, but the Bible says very, barely anything about them. You know why? Because these books are showing Israel what their transgressions were and why they went into captivity. I believe that's what's going on. So when we see guys like Shamgar, nobody really did anything wrong during his time. So it just briefly tells us he was one of the judges. He killed 600 guys one time with an ox code and delivered Israel against the Philistines. So, uh, but I'm inter- but I am, I'm interested. What was it like during that 80 years of rest? You know, if I was going to live during that during time of Israel, that's a generation I would like to have been a part of. The one that had rest for 80 years. You know, did, Israel did have some good days early on, if, but the Bible doesn't say much about those times. Those are like the good times were like the footnotes in their history. And we see in Malachi 3, we're not going to go through it, but in Malachi 3, when it was prophesying about when the Messiah comes, uh, how he's going to go and he's going to offer a sacrifice. And it says in verse 4, Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. And it's referring to a time when Israel was doing good. There were times in Israel's history where they were doing good, where they were being obedient to the Lord, but those were typically just footnotes in the history. But some of them are long periods, 80 years like this. And so the principles and applications we can learn from this chapter, they are appropriate for us to look at even today. I get it. We're not Israel. We're not a physical nation. We're a spiritual nation. But 1 Corinthians, we're not going to take time to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, the Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthian church when talking about the children of Israel. You know what he referred to them as? He says, when our fathers, he referred to the children of Israel as our fathers, talking to the Corinthians. He talked about all the things they went through. He talked about how they drank of that uh, spiritual rock. And that rock was Christ. Paul connected the Corinthian church to the children of Israel. And he told them all of those things that were written were written on for our admonition. And so understand, we should go to the book of Judges and we need to learn lessons as a church, as a people, as individuals. We need to make application. And so just some quick application. I've, I've mentioned some of this. I'm just going to kind of give an overview but some applications that we need to make as, as an independent fundamental Baptist church is first off, the consequences of backsliding are always severe, but rarely immediate. Let us never forget that. They, it is always severe, but rarely immediate. It's usually the next generation that suffers. If we backslide, we will probably benefit, but our kids will suffer. And we don't, we should be setting them up for good. We, and so God often raises up men to help his people get back on track. Sometimes they've got issues. Sometimes there's a little crazy. Sometimes they have some flaws. You know, so we can't, we can argue. God, everybody's wanting to argue about all these people. Again, you know, did, Rug, did Ruckman start the call back to the KJV or did he hijack it? I don't know. I wasn't around when all that went down. You know, when it comes to, you know, there's been, you know, people that have, Risen up that helped. I think guys like Curtis Hudson helped with the repentance thing with that issue. I think there's other guys that have just been used to cause confusion and just stir up trouble. You know, God's used men like John R. Rice, even though that guy wasn't King James only. Some people just can't handle that. But, you know, 
You know, history is history. You know, God often uses flawed men, but this does not mean we become blind followers of men. Sometimes we're going to see in the Bible, guys were doing great and Israel did great while they were following them, but those guys got off course and people that followed them got in trouble. Sometimes it's okay you know, to follow people for a while, but you know what? We always follow men as they follow Christ. I preached the message a while back, follow men, but not off a cliff. Only, only follow a man when you can see that Christ is in front of them. When they veer off, then you, you forget them. You lose them and you just keep your eye on Christ and be thankful that they help get you closer to Christ, help, that they help push you in the right direction for a long time. And there are, there's a lot of people in my life that were very influential that I am very thankful for and they can never un, you, you can never take away what they did for me. But it doesn't change the fact that some of those people have gone other directions and that have changed in some things. And you know what? It's heartbreaking. But you know what? I'm going to keep doing the good that I learned from them and I'm not going to follow them in the bad. There's people I've had before that have preached in this church that while they were preaching, I almost started crying because I'm like, I'm never going to be able to have this person back. And I I loved and cared about that person, but they were just starting to preach some weird stuff. I had heard some rumors, but I didn't believe them. I, I don't typically believe what I hear about other preachers, especially from other preachers. I wait until I see it myself. The preachers are so full of ego and pride you know, they're, they're, they're often the worst representation of, of, or about other people. But I didn't. I, I, I sat there and I listened. I was like, I can't believe you just said that. I didn't hate the guy. I was just sad. And, you know, uh, you know, still love him, still care about him, but I'm not going to ask him to come back. I've had, I've had missionaries like that. All kinds of people like that. But, you know, it doesn't change the fact they helped me. It doesn't change the fact they did good. That they helped in a lot of areas. And so every godly generation needs to make sure that they properly prepare the next generation for the challenges that they will face. Do not assume they know that they know everything you know. See, there's a lot of things that we are able to verbally express. You know, because we have Bible verses, because we've heard preachers that are really good at articulating certain things. But at the end of the day, what we have is not just something that you can articulate with words. It's spiritual. And if it's not in your heart, it does not matter what you can recite back. You know, who cares if you can recite who all the judges are if you haven't gotten any of the lessons from the book of Judges? If you don't don't get the spiritual application of any of these things. You know how many people can quote John 3.16, but yet when you ask them what you have to do to to get to heaven, you've got to repent of all your sins and just, you know, keep doing the right thing and be a good person. It's like, you just quoted John 3.16 with me. And you still think that's how you get to heaven? What's going on? They were taught in a class how to memorize and put a, a particular group of words together in the right order. But it's not in their heart. Never just assume these things that we teach are in your kids' hearts. And I tell you, some of the uh, happiest moments for me as, as a parent are when I've been able to see my kids like learn from experience, things that I can only attempt to put into words. You know, when they've seen other people get in trouble. Because we, we do, we, we give our kids all the scare talks. Don't, don't you ever do this. If you do this, this is going to happen. This is going to go down. This is how you're going to ruin your life. And 
when, when you're a teenager, you can't possibly understand all that. But you know what? Sometimes God allows them to see things in other people's lives where they do, they get to see it for themselves. And when you, not only do you see that they saw it, but also that they learn from it, it's a relief to you as a parent. And so we can, if, if we cannot assume the next generation knows it. And the current generation would always do well to look back at history and learn from what the previous generations did right and wrong. And let me tell you, the previous generations, they didn't do everything right. Okay? Everybody that I named tonight, they didn't do everything right. They all had some issues. They all had some things we could all be a little embarrassed about. I mentioned Jack Hiles. Well, you know what? They got a statue of the guy now. That's embarrassing. You think I want to talk about a guy there's a statue of? I know it was after he died. I know it was after, I know it was after he died. But I, I, don't think that's, I, don't, I don't think it's appropriate. But you know what? It doesn't change the fact that almost all the preachers that are in my life, he led them out of the Southern Baptist world. I'm glad I wasn't raised Southern Baptist. Have you seen what's going on in the Southern Baptist movement lately? I'm glad I wasn't raised in that. I'm, I'm thankful I was raised in the Independent Fundamental Baptist movement. And so, um, again, if we can talk about, if we can talk good about guys like Samson and Jephthah and Gideon, I think we can talk good about some of these IFB preachers from the past and the present. And so with that, let's pray dear Lord. I pray that this message was a help. I pray, Lord, we will uh, learn from the principles that are in the book of Judges. And I pray, Lord, that you will, uh, Lord, bless the Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement. Lord, it is uh, in really bad shape right now. But I pray that you will uh, revive it. Lord, I pray that you'll uh, raise up people to just kind of uh, wake them up in these areas where they're struggling and where they veered off. And I pray that you'll uh, just uh, do a great work uh, before your return. In your name we pray. Amen.